0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a 60 minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 3rd of February for the listening week that begins the 4th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. This week you'll hear articles scattered throughout on Black History Month along with some current events, opinion pieces, reviews of music and the like. Opening with article from NewsOne.com This was written by Zach Lin Lee posted on the 1st of February. Black History Month begins with Ron DeSantis waging war against Black History. It's almost as if DeSantis wakes up every morning determined to protect white delusion at all costs and rid the classrooms of all pro-black teachings that undermine his idea of American exceptionalism. Well, the first day of Black History Month is upon us, and there's no better time to remind you all that black history is under attack by conservative lawmakers and officials who fight on behalf of white fragility and American jingoism under the guise of protecting students and parents from ideological indoctrination parentheses, all while pushing their own ideological indoctrination. And at this point the head of the white nationalist snake appears to be none other than Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. There are many conservative politicians spreading anti-critical race theory propaganda in lieu of actually knowing anything about the academic study. There are plenty of right-wing white people weaponizing the word woke, a term derived from black vernacular. But if we were to single out one Republican conservative who embodies the racist attack on black history and social studies, one man who denies systemic racism while working his hardest to perpetuate it, it would have to be DeSantis. DeSantis's white supremacist resume includes arbitrarily keeping felons in Florida from voting, pushing for a law that protects drivers who hit Black Lives Matter protesters, plans to intentionally dilute black voting power through a racist redistricting of Florida's congressional map. Rejecting math textbooks he claims include CRT. Proposing multiple bills to ban CRT into, quote, woke oblivion. Banning any teachings that cause white people discomfort while also defending white racism against black people. Perpetuating Donald Trump's big lie. By implementing a voter fraud task force that resulted in the arrests of mainly black people who didn't know they were ineligible, and of course, his infamously—pardon me—his infamously racist and queerphobic "Stop Woke" act. In October, DeSantis made wild claims about white children being persecuted in the classroom during a debate against Democratic gubernatorial opponent. Charlie Crist. He also, once again, falsely claimed CRT teaches kids to hate America rather than simply study systemic racism. I'm proud of our history. I don't want to teach kids to hate our country, DeSantis said. I don't want to teach kids to hate each other, and the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race, he went on. DeSantis also went on to claim there were programs around the country where, quote, they will take a student, look at their race, say, okay, you're white, you're an oppressor, while telling black kids they're oppressed. Did he give any examples of a single school where this was happening? No. Did he make the unproven claims, knowing none of his MAGA world constituents would challenge him on it? rather than take his white grievance propaganda at face value, I mean, of course he did. It's almost as if DeSantis wakes up every morning with two things in mind. Protect white delusion at all costs and rid the classroom of all pro-black teachings that undermine his idea of American exceptionalism. Most recently, DeSantis and the state of Florida rejected an advanced placement course covering African American studies because it quote, significantly lacks educational value. Which essentially means the course includes things like BLM, the debate around reparations, queer studies, and other things that are going on in America but shouldn't be focused on in the classroom because they get white conservatives all in their fragile feelings. Unfortunately, it appears that the College Board caved to right-wing pressure and on Wednesday presented a revised version of the course that essentially stripped away anything that might be considered too radical for the delicate sensibilities of conservatives. This quote from the New York Times. The College Board purged the names of many black writers and scholars associated with critical race theory. queer experience and black feminism. It ushered out some politically fraught topics like Black Lives Matter from the formal curriculum. And it added something new. Black conservatism is now offered as an idea for a research project. In light of the politics, the College Board seemed to opt out of the politics. In its revised 234-page curriculum framework, The content on Africa, slavery, Reconstruction, and the Civil Rights Movement remains largely the same, but the study of contemporary topics, including Black Lives Matter, Affirmative Action, Queer Life, and the debate over reparations, is downgraded. The subjects are no longer part of the exam and are simply offered on a list of options for a required research project and even that list, in a nod to local laws, quote, can be refined by local states and districts. End of the New York Times quote. The fact that BLM was expunged from the curriculum but black black conservatism was added is all we need to know to show that ideology isn't the issue in and of itself. It's just the ideologue right-wingers don't like that's the problem. Of course, the College Board is claiming the whining and propagandizing by DeSantis and other conservatives was not the driving force behind the overall of the curriculum. At the College Board, we can't look to statements of political leaders, said the head of the College Board, David Coleman, who also said the changes came from, quote, the input of professors and long-standing AP principals. It's also worth mentioning that the changes to the curriculum were announced the day after DeSantis announced his own educational requirements that fight, quote, ideological conformity by, well, mandating his own version of ideological conformity. A further quote from the Times. The attack on the AP course turned out to be the prelude to a much larger agenda. On Tuesday, Governor DeSantis unveiled a proposal to overhaul higher education that would eliminate what he called ideological conformity by, among other things, mandating courses in Western civilization. Again, this is just more proof that Republicans aren't against indoctrination. They just want students indoctrinated into patriotism via whitewashed curriculum that pretends to be colorblind while actually being as pro white as pro whiteness gets. In fact, DeSantis also announced Tuesday that he also plans to ban Florida colleges from having programs on diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, just in case you weren't quite convinced that his agenda wasn't purely about unadulterated racism and the preservation of whiteness at the top of the social hierarchy. So, anyway, Happy Black History Month, y'all. And following that appropriately with this article, a self-care guide for Black History Month. This is written by Bilal G. Morris. It was posted February 1st by line. This is the year we take back our minds, and we start by adding self-care to our celebration of black culture. This may be edited for length. During this Black History Month, while we remember the leaders of the past, let's not forget about our own well-being. Being Being Black in America is hard. It comes with built-in trauma that, if left unchecked, can be really damaging. For the month of February, let's make the conscious decision to add some self-care to our celebration of Black History. Our ancestors would have wanted us to heal from their traumas, not perpetually steep ourselves in their pain and tragedy. When the heinous video of the police beating of Tyree Nichols was released, many Black people just couldn't bring themselves to watch it. The most traumatic stress from, pardon me, that's the post-traumatic stress from constantly seeing Black people killed by police has taken a serious toll on Black minds. Seeing things that happen like this to other people from your community broadly can have some traumatizing effects, especially if you're part of a stigmatized or minoritized group that's often dealing with trauma like this, said clinical psychologist Monica Williams, talking to NPR. Here are a few self-care concepts to consider for Black History Month. Understanding racial trauma. Understanding racial trauma and how it affects you and your loved ones is very important. According to Mental Health America, racial trauma, or race-based traumatic stress, there's an acronym, RBTS, refers to the mental and emotional injury caused by encounters with racial bias and ethnic discrimination, racism, and hate crimes. Experiences with race based discrimination can lead to symptoms very similar to post traumatic stress disorder like depression, anger, recurring thoughts of the event, headaches, chest pains, insomnia, hypervigilance, low self esteem, and so much more. If you think you make pardon me, that's mistype there, if you think you may be suffering from a race based traumatic stress injury, find a racial trauma-informed therapist who can guide you through your emotions healing from racial trauma does not happen in a vacuum so taking a community approach to healing is important healing with like-minded people can make the process so much more fulfilling finding pride in culture and race Black History Month is always filled with stories from the past that show our resilience and willingness to never give up the fight for freedom. There is so much pride in our past, but sometimes those stories get lost in the winds of time. This month, take the time to honor some of those lost stories and reflect on their achievements. One of those stories is the tale of Henry Box Brown. Henry escaped slavery by stuffing himself in a box and mailing himself from Virginia to the Free State of Philadelphia. Maybe they mean to say Free State of Pennsylvania. The brutal trip which took 27 hours almost killed Brown, but his freedom was more important because what is a life without freedom? Brown's legacy is unparalleled. His creative and enduring journey led the way for the success of the Underground Railroad He showed black slaves all over the South that escaping bondage and creating a life outside of slavery was possible for black people. He also inspired some famous magicians like Harry Houdini, whose coffin escape trick garnered worldwide attention. Charity During this Black History Month, try your best to lean into charity. Giving back is a great way to explore self-worth and start to feel better about yourself. Helping someone in need instantly makes you better. Find organizations that cater to people you're passionate about and just give back. Feed the homeless, mentor some kids at YMCA, clean up trash in the neighborhood. Whatever you can think you can do to lend a helping hand, just do it. Self-care should always start with you, but it should also never end with you. Extend your olive branch to those in need, and it will be returned twofold. Lastly, love yourself. Last but not least, don't forget to love yourself all month long. Take the time to stare at yourself in the mirror. See your blackness for the gift as it is. Self-love starts with understanding who you are. Many times black Americans let the world around them tell them who they are. But no more. This is the year we take back our minds and we start by adding self-care to our celebration of black culture. Still reading from newsone.com on Black History Month. This one's written by Howard Manley, posted February 2nd. Black History Month, books to read about African Americans fighting for equality. Dozens of GOP-controlled state legislatures across the U.S have taken steps to ban a growing list of relevant books. As the father of black history, Carter G. Woodson had a simple goal, to legitimize the study of African American history and culture. To that end, in 1912, shortly after becoming the second African American after W.E.B. Du Bois to earn a Ph.D. at Harvard, Woodson founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History in 1915. More than 100 years later, Woodson's goal and his work detailing the struggle of black Americans to obtain full citizenship after centuries of systemic racism is still evident today, as dozens of GOP controlled state legislatures across the U.S. have either considered or enacted laws restricting how race is taught in public schools, the Conversation U.S. has published numerous stories over the years exploring the rich terrain of black history and the never ending quest to form what the Founding Fathers called a more perfect union. Number one from the Underground Railroad to Civil War battlefields. Armed with a deep faith, Harriet Tubman is most famous for her successes along the Underground Railroad, the interracial network of abolitionists who enabled black people to escape from slavery along secret routes in the South to freedom in the North and Canada. But Tubman's activities as a Civil War spy are less well-known. As historian and Tubman biographer Kate Clifford Larson wrote, Tubman's devotion to America's promise of freedom endured, despite suffering decades of enslavement and second-class citizenship. Tubman once said, I had reasoned this out in my mind. There was one of two things I had a right to, liberty or death. If I could not have one, I would have the other, for no man should take me alive. Number 2. Juneteenth and the Myths of Emancipation As a scholar of race and colonialism, Chris Manjapra wrote that emancipation days, Juneteenth in Texas, are not what many people think. Manjapra noted this, emancipations did not remove all the shackles that prevented black people from obtaining full citizenship rights, nor did emancipations prevent states from enacting their own laws that prohibited black people from voting or living in white neighborhoods. Between the 1780s and the 1930s, over 80 emancipations from slavery occurred from Pennsylvania in 1780 to Sierra Leone in 1936. In fact, there were 20 separate emancipations in the United States alone between 1780 and 1865. An image of lynching found in a family photo album number 3. As director of the Lynching in Texas Project, historian Jeffrey L. Littlejohn provided the very kind of analysis that Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Republican legislators in Texas want to ban from public schools. Among the many documents and relics Little John has received, one package stood out. Inside was a family album of photographs filled with the usual images of memories, a vacation, a wedding anniversary dinner, but also one of the lynching of a black man. During the Jim Crow era, lynchings occurred regularly in Texas, with 16 in 1922 alone. But in 2021, the GOP controlled state legislature in Texas enacted a law prohibiting K through 12 educators from teaching that, quote, slavery and racism are anything other than deviations from the authentic founding principles of the United States, which include liberty and equality. In other words, as Little John wrote, this interpretation holds that slavery, racism and racism's deadly manifestation lynching did not serve as systemic forces that shaped Texas history, but were instead aberrations. The photo album serves as a direct challenge to that interpretation. Number 4. Black Soldiers Fight Racism and Nazis During World War II In his book called Half American, the epic story of African Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. Historian Matthew Delmont explored the idea of black patriotism and how many black soldiers saw their service as a way to demonstrate the capabilities of their race. Prompted by the Pittsburgh Courier, an influential black newspaper during the 1940s, Delmont wrote that black Americans rallied behind the Double V campaign during the war, victory over fascism pardon me fascism abroad and victory over racism at home during the war the red ball express the allied forces transportation unit that delivered supplies to the front lines was one example of such exceptional performance from August through November 1944 the mostly black force red ball express moved more than 400,000 tons of ammunition gasoline medical supplies and rations to battle fronts in France, Belgium, and Germany. And the last one, number five, an NBA champion's cerebral fight for equal rights. In his biography of Bill Russell, called King of the Court, Aram Godsousian wrote that the NBA champion sought to find worth in basketball amid the racial tumult of the civil rights movement. He emerged from that crucible by crafting a persona that one teammate called a kingly arrogance. Russell, who died July 31, 2022, was the NBA's first black superstar, its first black champion, and its first black coach. As a civil rights activist, Russell questioned the nonviolence philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr., and defended the militant ideas of Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam. He refused to accept segregated accommodations in the Deep South and recalled instances of police brutality during his childhood in Oakland, California. Switching our source to theroot.com for a few articles. This one, OMG! Miami PD has Black History Month themed cop cars. Miami, Florida's Mayor Francis Suarez made the announcement on Thursday. At this point, all we can say is the jokes just write themselves. This one was posted on the 3rd, written by Candace McDuffie. The Miami Police Department is getting ridiculed on the Internet for a Black History Month stunt gone terribly wrong. Terribly, terribly wrong. On Thursday, Miami police revealed a quote, Black History Month cop car in front of the Black Police Precinct and Courthouse Museum. The vehicle is red, green, and yellow, which are the colors of the Pan-African flag, and contains an outline of Africa. It also depicts raised black fists. Mayor Francis Suarez stated, This is a beautiful collaboration to commemorate Black History and Black History Month and the history of African Americans and our police department and our city. This is black history." Miami Police Chief Manuel Morales added that the CAR honors the legacy and history of the black police precinct and the first black officers who joined the department in 1944 who were Moody Hall, Clyde Lee, John Millage, Edward Kimball, and Ralph White. Morales said They stood against all odds, not only against those in the community who wished to stop them, but members of their own department that wished to stand in their way. The timing of this performative gesture on the heels of the Tyree Nichols funeral was condemned by many. In response to the unveiling, former President and Director-Counsel of LDF NAACP Legal Defense Fund simply tweeted this This cannot be. Another user hilariously stated, imagine getting racially profiled by a cop in a Kinte cruiser. In addition, police in Columbus, Ohio, also decided to share their Black History Month cruiser on Wednesday, as well as to celebrate the achievements of African-Americans and recognize their roles in our history. The tone-deaf nature of these actions is harrowing, Black folks are disproportionately targeted, harassed, arrested, incarcerated, and killed by law enforcement. The answer to this injustice is way more complex than decorating a cop car. Do better. Still reading from the theroot.com for some current news. This one published on the 3rd, also written by Candace McDuffie. An inhumane proposed Massachusetts bill would allow prisoners to trade organs for reduced sentences. The legislation would take a month to a year off of an inmate's sentence. Just when you thought American prison systems couldn't be any more inhumane, a ridiculous new bill has been proposed in Massachusetts that would permit prisoners to donate their organs in exchange for reduced sentences. Perhaps most shockingly, Democrats are sponsoring the legislation. The act to establish the Massachusetts incarcerated individual bone marrow and organ donation program is sponsored by Democratic reps Carlos Gonzalez of Springfield and Judith Garcia of Chelsea. The bill would give inmates anywhere from 60 days to a year off of their prison sentence as long as the incarcerated individual has donated bone marrow or organs. The politicians pushing for the legislation say it would restore bodily autonomy to incarcerated folks and increase the diversity of donors. This bill, Gonzalez told WGBH, would have a committee in place that would oversee the organ donation program. Gonzalez said it basically establishes a committee with advocates of our inmate population to establish the parameters, the guidelines, the clarity, the transparency on a policy that is lacking within the Department of Corrections today. However, critics strongly disagree and say it may even be illegal. A Brigham and Women's Hospital Epidemiologist epidemiologist, Monique, Monique Jimenez told the Boston Globe that the legislation was downright perverse. Said There are certainly ways we can engage our free communities in educating them about the options of organ and bone marrow donation, but going to our incarcerated population as a source is problematic at best and exploitative. According to the Health Resources and Services Administration, there are nearly 4,000 people on the waiting list for organs in Massachusetts, Black and brown people are jailed at higher rates than their white counterparts, so a bill like this would be detrimental to them. South Carolina tried to do the same thing in 2007 with proposed legislation that would have reduced sentences by up to 180 days if an inmate donated an organ. After outrage ensued, a voluntary organ and tissue donation program was created instead. Next also published by Candace I mean published by The Root.com and written by Candace McDuffie on the second. Congressional Black Caucus demand police reform in a White House meeting following Tyree Nichols' funeral. On Thursday, President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris will have a meeting with members of the Congressional Black Caucus at the White House to talk police reform. This comes just one day after funeral services for tyree nichols the 29 year old black man who was beat to death by five black police officers last month in memphis cbc chair representative stephen horsford democrat of nevada asked for the meeting in lieu of the continuous violence against black people at the hands of law enforcement horsford explained No one in our nation should fear interacting with the police officers who serve our diverse communities, large and small. Many black and brown people, however, and many young people in general, are justifiably afraid to interact with law enforcement officials. Shortly after the body cam footage of Nichols' fatal beating was released on Friday, Biden said he was horrified by the actions of officers. Biden remarked, It is yet another painful reminder of the profound fear and trauma, the pain and the exhaustion that black and brown Americans experience every single day. The last time there were negotiations about police reform in Congress was in September 2021, but it failed. Though Republicans have control of the House, Horsford remains optimistic about tangible change happening. He said... The President has unique powers in the Office of the Presidency, and he's committed to this issue. He can use his position to help, just like he did by getting the Bipartisan Safer Communities Law across the finish line, just like he did with getting the Infrastructure Law across the finish line, just like he did getting the Chips and Science Law across the finish line. Next, written by Jessica Washington, published on the 3rd. Experts say let the world see what they did to Tyree Nichols. When we don't have records, when we don't have documentation, that's when people are able to ignore the problems, says BLM co-founder Alicia Garza. It's been nearly three years since the video of George Floyd's murder was released to the public, sparking a national outcry but is the world a better place since the first time we watched pardon me—watched Eric Garner's, George Floyd's, and now Tyree Nichols' deaths play out on camera? And is it worth the trauma we've endured as a black community every time we press play on yet another video of police brutality to make those changes a reality? Few people have had as much of a front row seat to these tragedies as Black Lives Matter Global Network co-founder Alicia Garza. She said, I think the bigger question is not the trauma of it. I think the question is what do we plan to do with this very public witnessing of murders that happen in our communities day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. Things have changed since the summer of 2020. States have passed hundreds of police reform bills, The Justice Department has ramped up its involvement in local police departments, and more officers have been charged with homicide and manslaughter. But as the Nichols video proves, we're a long way off from justice. Garza says, The culture of our society encourages people to look away, and it encourages people to forget. We move on from tragedy to tragedy as if they never happened before. When we don't have the records, when we don't have documentation, that's when people are able to ignore the problems. Rashawn Ray, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and a sociology professor at the University of Maryland, agrees, if we look at right after George Floyd, three out of four Americans said that racism and policing was a problem, he said. Heading into 2020, beginning of 2021, those numbers have dropped down like to 50%. Ray says that media coverage of police reform, even when the reforms never actually passed, helped to lull people into a sense that things have improved. They're like, oh, things have changed, says Ray, so when these new incidents pop up, it's a reminder that things haven't changed as much as they should. That doesn't mean the trauma inflicted upon the black community when these videos are released isn't real, says Ray. If a person has seen the video, he says, the way our mind works psychologically is that every time somebody mentions Tyree Nichols, that triggers those images in your head. These collective memories, oftentimes memories of trauma, then impact our mental, emotional, and physical health. Ray adds that for black people living in communities where police violence has occurred, the impact is even more severe. It's very similar to the trauma that happens with terrorist attacks, he says. But while, there is undeniable, pardon me, while it's undeniable that these videos can cause psychological damage, Ray says that doesn't mean they needn't be available. I get that we are inundated with these images and videos, but in many regards, you have the ability to choose to turn that off or not to look at it says Ray, and unfortunately, the people who lost their lives or who were brutalized don't have that ability. In the legal context, the availability of these videos, often taken on cell phone cameras, has changed how attorneys like Tracy Brown, who represents victims of police brutality and their families, do their jobs. Brown says... We're finding these videos extremely helpful. We can actually see with our own eyes how things actually unfolded." Brown says that before the widespread practice of people filming police officers, attorneys would have to jump through hoops to access video and first-hand accounts from law enforcement, making it a lot harder to understand what happened. She also says that some critical reforms have come out of the distribution of these videos. Brown says, I do think that the reforms with regard to having more body cam and dash cam videos are good. Some police departments are implementing tougher discipline for police officers who engage in acts of brutality. Some are actually allowing families and plaintiffs to see the discipline records of officers, when before we couldn't see it. Still, Brown worries that we could become numb, to the violence we see on screen. As an African-American woman, as the mother of black children, including a black son, I worry about the desensitization of seeing these videos, says Brown. That by them being so prevalent, and we see it every time we turn on the news, some police interaction, that people sort of click off in their minds or with the remote and don't really register it anymore. The people who really need to be confronted with these videos are lawmakers who have the power to make a difference, says Garza. I think it's important that we don't go so far as to say nobody should see it, nobody should watch it because it's traumatizing. No, there are some people who need to watch it, and if you don't want to because it's upsetting for you, that's okay, says Garza. But there are some people who need to see it and take action because they've seen it. Moving to local news for the Denver-Boulder area where this is recorded. Going to Denver Center of Performing Arts newsletter. Support Black History Month in Denver. Since 1976, every United States President has designated the month of February as Black History Month. This month is meant to celebrate the achievements of African Americans and to recognize their central role in U.S. history. In Denver, there are many local activities and programs to support Black History Month. Discover Black Artists. Denver Botanic Gardens presents Organic Tarot, sometimes pronounced tarot, works by Taya Alyssa Anthony, and that's on until April 3rd. Organic Tarot explores the stories of people of color depicted in historic photographs through the tradition of tarot cards and fortune-telling. The Culture Museum has its grand opening had its grand opening over Martin Luther King Jr. weekend an immersive experience filled with exciting and interactive exhibits. The Culture Museum's mission is to celebrate black culture and elevate black creators. Battle it out in a boxing ring with Mike Tyson or sing with the Wu-Tang Clan. Reserve your time slot and purchase tickets on their website. which is theculturemuseum.com. And Cleo Parker Robinson Dance is a 50-year-old Denver-based artistic institution hosting the CPRD Ensemble Academy Theater and Education Programs. One of America's foremost modern dance companies, the CPRD Ensemble performs works inspired by the African American experience. On February 25th, see the One People Many Voices Concert at the North Glen Arts Parsons Center. A special performance by the CPRD Ensemble will also take place during the CPRD Theater Open House on February 26th. Once again, that's for Cleo Parker Robinson Dance. The Source Theatre Company started as a resource for the African-American community to develop new plays and hone their acting skills by providing workshops and classes. Now, this theatre company produces regional and world premieres and original works of cultural and historical significance in the African-American tradition to nurture the black theatre community in Denver. The Source Theatre Company podcast, called Regional Distinction, Featuring excerpts from their original theater works is available on their website, which is thesourcedenver.org. The Boulder Ballet will present Black Voices of Dance on February 24th through 27th, This event features three world premieres from black choreographers, including nationally renowned Gregory Dawson. And you can purchase tickets for that at thedairy.org. Next category, explore black history. The Colorado Black Arts Festival, in conjunction with the Source Theatre Company, presents the history of African-American music featuring blues, jazz, gospel, and soul music, and celebrating the contributions of African-American music to modern society. Performances will take place throughout February and tickets are available at colbaf.org that's C-O-L-B-A-F. And at the Blair Caldwell African-American Research Library is Passages Bound and Free exhibit on display through february twenty fifth, featuring the works of local artist Verline Mejiza Geither forgive my mispronunciation, likely. This exhibition explores the black experience in the United States. Also hosted by the Blair Caldwell African American Research Library, is demystifying the Black Panther Party and Black Lives Matter organizations, which will unpack the history of these often misunderstood organizations. Senior librarian Jamaica Lewis will speak about the organization's missions and activists that have inspired global change. That is a Zoom event taking place on February 19th and can be registered for at denverlibrary.org. Let's check that again denverlibrary.org demystifying the Black Panther Party and the Black Lives Matter organization's Zoom event. The Wings Over the Rockies Museum teamed up with the commemorative Air Force to feature the limited-time CAF Rise Above exhibit from February 23rd to the 26th. Experience the history and legacy of the Tuskegee Airmen and Women Air Force Service Pilots in an immersive exhibition featuring two original short films. And finally, the Black American West Museum and Heritage Center aims to promote the role African Americans played in the settlement and growth of the Western United States. Explore exhibits and collections telling the stories of those early miners, soldiers, homesteaders, ranchers, blacksmiths, school teachers, lawmen, and every other profession needed to build up and develop the West. Oh, oops, it says, unfortunately the museum is currently closed due to restoration work, but check back on their website for updates when they reopen. That's the Black American West Museum and Heritage Center. And this next will be closing on Saturday the 4th. Oh, pardon me, that closes on the 5th. The Dirty South Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and the Sonic Impulse. This can be found at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Denver. This exhibition explores the aesthetic legacies and traditions of black culture in the African-American South as seen through the lens of contemporary black musical expression. Notably hip-hop, this groundbreaking exhibition lauded by critics from the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times, argues for the importance of the American South and black culture as critical to our understanding of America's past, present, and future. And a musical event, Same Cloth, on February 25th, at 6 and 9, it says, at Dazzle. Same Cloth is a Denver-based project led by prolific keyboardist Solomon J. Chapman Sr. and inventive vocalist Joe Focke. Embarking upon a new musical journey, this charismatic duo combines their peculiarities to share meaningful art. Performing original music and creative creative cover arrangements, Same Cloth's musical vision is intensified and rounded out by Will Gaines on bass, Callum Bear and James Trey on guitar, and Matt Campbell on drums. As a unit, same cloth combines the diverse traditions of Black American music to create an energetically eclectic and emotionally elevating live music experience. See them in back-to-back performances, or one, oh, on, pardon me, see them in back-to-back performances on one special night. That's the 25th at Dazzle. And keeping to this local scene, this next one comes from 5280, Denver's Mile High Magazine. It was written on January 18th. Written by Ali Sivek. Why it's still important to support black-owned shops like Whittier Cafe. Almost three years into the pandemic, black-owned businesses in Denver face pressures amidst less intentional customer purchasing habits. At 2 p.m. every Sunday afternoon at Whittier Café off Humboldt and East 25th Streets, incense is burned, coffee is brewed in clay pots called Jibenis, and bowls of popcorn are shared at a weekly coffee ceremony. As a part of the traditional Ethiopian gathering, hosts produce a concentrated brew similar to espresso, with a deep richness and subtle sweetness that cuts through the beans, typically bitter notes. Small shots of the steaming bev- pardon me beverage are served to a bustling group of patrons from all around the neighbouring community. The weekly ceremony a tradition in cafe owner Millet. Oh there's a last name I'll really have trouble with Beer Han Maskell's birthplace, pardon me, of Tigri Ethiopia. Ethiopia is just one example of her efforts to encourage connection and provide a safe space where all patrons feel welcome in the Whittier neighborhood. Upon Whittier Cafe's opening in the historically black community of the same name in 2014, it soon became a hub for social activism, a place for people to organize, recite political poetry, and discuss local and national issues. Birkin Maskell says, 2014 was a terrible summer related to police brutality, so it seemed like a lot of those gatherings were happening here on our patio. Ever since then, we became that landing place. Whenever something crazy and unfair would happen and there was nowhere else to go, people would come to Whittier. While the pandemic and racial reckoning in 2020 brought a particularly high influx of customers who were dedicated to supporting black-owned business and social justice, Pardon me. Behran Maskell notes that in the last few years, people have become less intentional about where they spend their money. This comes alongside increasing pressures of gentrification and property landlord issues in Denver, making it difficult for black-owned businesses in the neighborhood and across the city to survive. She says, We're one of the last women standing, so what happens if we go? We're losing so much character in the community. For sure people are less intentional. I don't know if we just have shorter memories or if there's so much pain that it's hard to prioritize or figure it out. It's hard. She uses her job as a realtor to help fund the cafe, pouring her commissions from selling a house into payroll, the space's renovations, and for buying equipment like espresso machines. In addition to the same staffing and inflation issues, that other small businesses across the service industry have. During the pandemic, many black-owned businesses experienced difficulty receiving funds from the city and state, and many of those businesses closed their doors as a result. Whittier Cafe received financial assistance from Black Resilience in Colorado Fund, a community movement that formed to save black businesses during the pandemic which were already operating at a lower level even in normal times. Baron Maskell attributes acts of community support like these to helping her business survive. The neighborhood cafe has a very loyal group of regular customers some of whom will commute past 15 coffee shops to get their morning brew from Whittier. While a common aspect of gentrification in city neighborhoods like Whittier is the replacement of homes or existing businesses with new coffee shops. Virhan Maskell commits herself to serving robust coffee exclusively from African countries and educates her customers about the source of their cup of joe. She says, I'm from Tigray, the northern region of Ethiopia, and coffee is very much a part of the culture. Coffee trees grow in your backyard kind of thing. A lot of people don't know how beans are grown, and they grow trees essentially. Oh, pardon me, and they grow on trees, essentially, and how you pull them and they look like cherries, and the whole drying process. All of that, it's like a normal thing where we grew up in coffee producing countries. your cafe is open seven days a week? and offers a full coffee menu as well as breakfast burritos, cookies and pastries, African beer and wine, and a variety of smoothies. Whittier exclusively sources its coffee beans from African countries including Rwanda and Kenya. Currently, the café is boycotting Ethiopian coffee due to continuing political injustices and genocide in Tigray. What will probably be the last article for this week comes from the New York Times. This was posted January 27th, written by Dion Circe. Now he aims, pardon me, that's he's dazzled diners in the U.S. Now he aims to change people's perspectives in Ivory Coast. The chef, Rose Traore, has spent years building a name for himself in New York, but for his new project, he's tapping his family ties to West Africa. The chef and model, Rose Traore, has checked the big-name boxes in New York City that lead to prominence in his dual professions. Mr. Traore's resume includes stints at... Eleven Madison Park and the restaurant at the Nomad Hotel. Now he's headed to the West African nation of Ivory Coast, where he's opened a boutique hotel and restaurant in a palm tree-lined beach resort area called Grand Bassam. I want to make another contribution to the beautiful things in this country, he said. I want to change people's perspective. For years, tourism across Francophone Africa appealed largely to french retirees who clung to lazy days at big resorts on azure coastlines but mr triori's hotel la Fourchette de rose opens at a time when a new audience of young americans and other westerners is being lured to the region by top-notch surf breaks and fashion festivals in Senegal, and art shows in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ivory Coast, and beyond. Mr. Traore, 31, who was born in Washington, D.C., and whose parents are Ivorian, spent part of his childhood in Ivory Coast. The country is bouncing back after the pandemic slowed tourism, and from the taint of a deadly terrorist attack seven years ago, tourists are again arriving in Grand Bassam, drawn to its fishing culture colonial architecture and laid-back beach vibe it feels so incredibly natural to open my first establishment on this land where my ancestors settled and to be surrounded by so many resources said mr triore who was on site this month to put the finishing touches on the january 19th grand opening including installing the first of what he expects to be a rotating exhibit pardon me exhibition of local artists Mr. Triori is passionate about style, whether in the form of food, fashion, or art. I first met him four years ago at a gallery opening for the artist Kehinde Wiley, who has started his own ventures in the region with an artist residency in Dakar, Senegal's capital. On a recent drizzly day in Lower Manhattan, Mr. Triori spoke to me about his new project as he peered out over the East River from a perch. At the elegant private club Casa Cipriani. That's Cipriani. Oh, pardon me again. Cipriani. Yeah, I was right the first time. Our conversation has been edited for length and clarity, and I will probably edit it further here for length. Your career has gotten a lot of traction in the United States, including your work at the Guggenheim and curating a menu for an event featuring the actress Lupita Nyongo. Why divert to an entirely different project so far away? Answer. For the past ten years, my whole career has been so focused on working on my craft and building a name for myself in the States. I love my roots and I've always kept my eye on the Ivory Coast as a place I feel instinctively connected and indebted to. This is another step I felt was perfect as I continue to build myself into a household name. Going back to the Ivory Coast keeps me grounded and is a true connection to my roots. Tell me more about your roots. I lived in Ivory Coast when I was younger. It was a place where I had these small moments that turned me into a chef, being surrounded by a community, going to the market, enjoying good food with my grandparents. My mom came to the United States and did what she was used to doing in Ivory Coast which was hair braiding. She opened two salons in Washington DC that are still running to this day. She made a name for herself there. She went back and forth to Ivory Coast and started building up a real estate business. She is a hard-working entrepreneur. At first she didn't really understand what I was doing but now she gets it. She said maybe it's the time for us to work together. She bought the property and we built it up together. This place in Ivory Coast, it was just very wholesome because my dad was a fisherman. It felt so great to finally be able to say I'm thankful for where I'm at, for the opportunities that I've gained in the States, and I want to return to this place. I've always liked small boutiques where you're able to focus more. This will be like my house where I can welcome people and have them enjoy my energy. That brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by funds from the Virginia W. Hill Foundation. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.